Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and even in some cases, offensive. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. You know what? There is very adult content ahead and you have been warned. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. As always, I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the weird, wonderful, unexplained, eerie, scary, and downright unbelievable. So, there will be tales of ghosts, murder, supernatural beings, and unexplained mysteries. So, sit back. Grab your favorite drink, relax, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, we're looking into things that go bump in the night. Or maybe more than just bump in the night. But before we go there, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us who are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. Your choice of potion is yours and yours alone, so choose your venom accordingly. Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say entity? That's going to be a single shot. And every time I say Doris, that's going to be a double shot. Ah, I know you guys are trying to guess what the story is, so let's just get to it, shall we? The business end is out of the way, so we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma and the famous and true story of the Entity. Hauntings truly run the spectrum of the weird. You have some that merely involve moving objects, others that entail roving apparitions of some type, and still other more malevolent cases that have reports of physical violence and assault revolving around them. Then you have the truly frightening accounts that involve all of the above. One of the most terrifying hauntings in history seems to have settled down on one very unfortunate family in the 1970s, involving a group of specters with an inclination for violence, mayhem, and even rape, and which would go on to become one of the most ghastly incidents of paranormal activity on record. The story of one of the most frightening and violent hauntings of all time starts in 1974 with a single mother by the name of Doris Bither, who lived in Culver City, California with her four children. The family have moved here from Santa Monica in order to try and start a new life after a string of abusive relationships that Doris had been in and to try and escape her demon of alcoholism. It was a rough time of things as Doris had barely enough to raise her four children, all born from different fathers, and there were a broken family living in dirt poor conditions. But things would soon get worse yet when something decidedly dark and paranormal came calling. It started rather creepily enough with an elderly woman who came over one day shortly after they had moved in to tell Doris out of the blue that she had once lived in the home and that it was evil before wandering off to never be seen again. So far, 
so eerie, but it would prove to be almost prophetic. Not long after this, there would be instances of classic poltergeist activity, such as lights turning on and off, objects moving on their own, and anomalous noises, all of which were witnessed by all of the family members. Then things graduated to the more frightening when apparitions would start appearing. At first, it was just glimpses, a shadow figure moving across the living room here, a movement in the periphery of the vision there, but it got steadily more intense, and even neighbors began seeing these things around the house. The figures that were seen started to take shape, appearing as fog-like humanoid shapes that would move about or merely sit in the corner and simply watch. In an interview with Ghost Theory, Doris's middle son, Brian Harris, would describe them as such, and I quote, It was never clear. When they would make themselves known, it was always like a fog, like a human, but not quite. It was like a sculpture, like a chiseled body. Not a full figure, but at times we could see some of it. At times it would be annoying. We would be watching television and these things would walk by, like nothing. We were so used to the poltergeist that we just got to a point where we wouldn't even care. End quote. It became increasingly clear that there were more than one of the entities as well. Either three or four of them, depending on who you ask, although Harris has said that there were definitely four. This spooky paranormal activity, although at first scary but mostly harmless, would not stay that way for long, soon becoming increasingly terrifying. Not content to just mill about and cause mischief, the entities began to lash out at the family, pushing, shoving, hitting, and even clawing or biting them. And this would happen at all hours, even in the middle of the daytime. And Harris would say, and I quote again, We all experienced some form of attack. There was this pushing, biting, and scratching being done to us. There were about four entities in the home, and they made themselves known by appearing all the time. I think it took a lot of energy for them to do that. It was like as if they showed themselves whenever they felt like. End quote. Although he said there were four of the specters, Doris herself would later claim that there were only three. But the true number was, well, in truth, too many. Even more terrifying still was that the entities began to actively target Doris the most vehemently, and it went from simple pushes, scratches, and bites to full-on assault, with the ghosts even allegedly holding her down and raping her with abandon. This would often happen in the next room while the terrified children listened to the bangs, thuds, and their mother's desperate screaming as they cowered in the shadows. But it also sometimes happened right in front of their very eyes. And Harris has described these spectral attacks as such, and I quote, The whole rape thing was real. My room was right next door to my mother's. I would hear the attacks happening, things being thrown, her screaming, Then she would come out of the bedroom and have all of these bruises on her legs, her inner thighs. There were times where we would see it happen right in front of us. It was like if a man was standing in front of my mother and would start to beat her. Imagine a woman being beaten. You could see her being picked up and thrown around. Sounds, slaps, but there was no one there to actually do it. 
We all felt it too, pulling, biting, and scratching. We were all attacked, end quote. These vicious attacks and sexual assaults went on unabated, with the apparitions appearing without warning practically every day and night, and it got to the point where the family was desperate for anyone to help them. The biggest of the entities even gained a creepy nickname for himself, Mr. Who's It. Doris took it upon herself to approach paranormal investigators and parapsychologists Carrie Gaynor and Dr. Barry Taff, who were intrigued by her harrowing tale to say the least, and went about arranging a full investigation into the claims. They would not be disappointed. The team moved in for their investigation on August the 22nd of 1974. Thinking at first that there would not be much to this all other than a seriously disturbed young woman, the first thing they did was take a look at the myriad bruises, scratches, and scars that she had all over her body, especially along her inner thighs, allegedly inflicted, inflicted by the entities and which proved to be far more savage and severe than they had originally expected. She gave them additional information on the attacks by saying that there were three of them, despite her son's claim that there were four, and that the two smaller ones would hold her down while the bigger one raped her. Intrigued, but not yet sold, the investigators set up their equipment in an effort to gather any evidence at all of a haunting. When this was done, they had Doris go into one of the rooms where the most activity had been occurring and told her to start yelling and cursing at the unseen entities, trying to draw them out. Almost immediately, there was intense orb activity captured on the equipment, with spots of light flitting all over the place like angry bees. After this, Doris was seen to be enveloped by a greenish mist, followed by the materialization of what appeared to be the upper torso of a man, which hovered there in the mist and was apparently so terrifying that one of the investigators fainted. This torso could not be captured on the equipment, but there is a photograph of Doris with a strange arc of light appearing above her. This sort of intense paranormal activity would continue virtually unabated for the next several months of the investigation, including apparitions, mysterious lights, temperature drops, horrific mystery odors, and moving objects. It was even noticed that the investigators' presence actually seemed to anger and irritate the entities, and it was also found that playing music by the metal group Black Sabbath also seemed to cause an uptick in activity, making it all stronger. But then it suddenly started winding down and stopping altogether for no discernible reason. In later years, Doris would move her and her family to other places on several occasions, but according to her, each time the entities would follow her wherever she went, although somewhat weaker than they had been. She would even claim at one point that she had been impregnated by one of the spirits. Although her case had become quite well known at the time, Doris herself would drop off the radar for years before finally succumbing to cardiac arrest in 1995 leaving us no further along as to what happened to her than what than when these supernatural forces first targeted her. What exactly happened to this poor woman and her family? What sort of spirits or entities targeted them and why? Well, that would depend a lot on who you ask. But according to Taff himself, it has nothing at all to do with ghosts or spirits as we imagine them. 
Taff is convinced that the phenomena was caused by the subconscious human mind lashing out to affect the world around it through psychokinesis, the ability to move objects with the mind. In his theory, this is all the result of various factors coming together to cause the mind of a victim to reach out to wreak, to wreak havoc on the outside world, most often without their awareness that they are even doing so. So insistent is he that this is the case, and that such hauntings are caused by the projections of living beings rather than demons or the ghosts of the dead, that he has expressed disdain for these paranormal ideas by saying, and I quote, I don't, for one second, believe this is the work of dead people throwing living people around, as there are no academic credentials required for anyone to go out and investigate the paranormal. Every New Age groupie is out there looking for demons, emulating the garbage they've seen on cable TV paranormal shows. To fully comprehend the possibility that a living person's subconscious mind can involuntarily generate such power as to manifest luminous anomalies, apparitions, and macroscopic psychokinetic events is for me far more compelling than if a discarnate intelligence was responsible. Now I'm just going to stop right here for a second and go, he said this in 1974, and I'm just going to say that there are at least three channels that I can think of off the top of my head that have turned into nothing but a paranormal television show. So this dude was so above and beyond his time. Anyways, back to the story. The evidence and collected data suggests that these effects are the result of what's called recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, RSPK. There's two types of psychokinesis, moving physical objects around without physical means. There's microscopic, which works on very small scales, things like affecting random number generators, random event generators, and moving subatomic particles around. It's usually electrostatic based. Fatigue in the indiv individual is shown and it, as it's done on a conscious level. And then there's macroscopic, what we consider poltergeist activity. And that's a whole different ball of wax. We're talking about the ability of moving very massive objects, hundreds of pounds, easily. It's done on a subconscious level, as there's no fatigue seen in the person at the core of it. Like the microscopic type, it's believed that the phenomena are generated by a living human agent. Taff has used this explanation to explain a wide range of what are traditionally considered to be paranormal phenomena, which he has compi compiled into a book called Aliens Above, Ghosts Below, Explorations of the Unknown, which takes the approach of trying to explain all of these disparate phenomena with possible real-world rational solutions. Others disagree and say that this was some sort of demonic presence, a trio of ghosts up to no good, or just the delusions of a fractured mind. It has never been solved either way. Whatever the case is, rem is remained to be seen, but in the meantime, the Doris Bithers story has gone on to become one of the most frightening and controversial accounts of a haunting on record. So famous and noteworthy is this mysterious case that it was made into a 1983 Hollywood film based on these events called The Entity, starring Barbara Hershey and directed by Sidney J. Fury, and which is loosely based on the real events. But what was it that terrorized this, violent so, this family so violently? We may never really know. Doris Bither's story is possibly one of the most terrifying and well-documented paranormal accounts. Not only was she repeatedly plagued by three poltergeists, but these three poltergeists raped her on several occasions, and many of these events were witnessed by doctoral researchers from the University of California. 
In August of 1974, Dr. Barry Taff, a doctor in psycho, psycho, psychophysiology, say that 10 times fast, right? A biomedical engineer and a world-renowned parapsychologist was discussing issues related to his latest case with an associate while browsing books at the local bookstore. Doris Bither overheard the conversation and approached Dr. Taff, telling him that her house was haunted and she needed his help. He agreed to investigate and at the time thought it to be another standard case no different than his hundreds of other reports. Arriving at Doris's home located at 11547 Braddock Drive, Dr. Taft noted that the home was in a state of squalor. Doris was a single mother living with her adolescent daughter and her three sons. In his initial discussions, discussions with Doris, Dr. Taff reported that she was the victim of, of an abusive childhood and to that day was demonstrating systems of a deep psychological trauma. Although he didn't immediately dismiss the case, these discoveries added to his skepticism and possibly heightened the degree of investigation. The children first told Dr. Taft about the entity that they called Mr. Hoosett, which all four had claimed to witness on numerous occasions. He noted that their depictions were remarkably accurate, not just matching each other's, but also in details commonly attributed to entities from his other cases. In 2009, Ghost Theory conducted an interview with Doris's middle son, Brian Harris, who stated they all experienced some form of attack. There was this pushing, biting, and scratching all being done to them. There was four entities in the home that made themselves known by appearing all the time, and he had described the entities as follows. It was always like a fog, like a human, but not quite. During one incident, Brian, who was in his early teens at the time, attempted to intervene in his mother's attack and was thrown across the room. Reading the full interview is guaranteed to send some chills down your spine, so if you're looking for some chills, I suggest you look it up. Doris described her attack, saying that there were in fact only three entities, two smaller ones that would hold her down when the third larger entity raped her. These attacks left marks on Doris's body, indicative of a rape, including bruises on her inner thighs and throat. The combined testimony of the family convinced Dr. Taft to establish a base for the monitoring of the paranormal phenomena in the house. He brought in specialized lighting, cameras, and audio recording equipment, as well as a team of colleagues from UCLA. On their first formal investigation of the entity plaguing Doris Bither, Dr. Taff requested that she attempt an appearance by provoking the beings, which she did. The results were astounding. Lights appeared to shoot through the room, arcing in midair. Many were caught on film, and all of this was witnessed by the 20-something researchers present. In 1982, the events that took place at the Braddock Drive location were recreated in the movie The Entity. However, many liberties were taken with regards to the portrayal of Dr. Taft's study of the actual entity, going so far as to de depict the team capturing the entity. In reality, Dr. Taft and his team did everything they could for Doris Bither and her family. But in the end, the Bither family moved away, first to San Bernardino, California, then to Texas, and finally back to San Bernardino. With each new move, the entity followed Doris Bither and her family. In the, late eight, in the late 1980s, her children, now grown, Doris disappeared. And in 1995, the entity's real-life victim, Doris Bither, also known as Doris Donner and Doris McGowan, passed away at the age of 58 of cardiopulmonary failure. While it was stated that her death was the result of multiple organ failure, the precise cause of Doris Bither's untimely death, death was never medically determined. 
And with that, we've come to the end of our episode. And I do thank you for joining me today, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think. You can always reach the show and me at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have suggestions for future shows or you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line because I do reply to all emails. And on that note, that's really all the time we have for today. And I thank you for joining us here on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to tune in next time. And for one of my favorite personal quotes on the paranormal from the great Kelly Armstrong, I quote, I grew up writing about the paranormal, and I blame too many Saturday mornings watching Scooby-Doo. Yep, I'm with you, Kelly. I blame Scooby-Doo for my unhealthy fascination with the paranormal, too, and I hope you guys do, too. See you, my heathens. See you next time. Love you lots. Mwah! We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.